Hey church, Pastor Adam here, and I want to say thank you so much for stopping by to join us for Church Online today. And, and while we are super stoked that you're hanging out with us this morning, we do want to remind you that really this is just is supplemental. And man, it just cannot replace the local church in your life. And so look, we hope that you are encouraged and, and challenged and shaped by today's message that's being preached. Uh, but, but also, we don't want to be uh, your substitute. Uh, for the local church body that you should be involved in. We really do believe that the local church is God's plan A in reaching the world. So with that being said, please come hang out with us in person uh, one Sunday. If you're in Paducah in the area, come hang out with us to get some rest or find a local Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching church that you can get plugged in and connected to. Uh, Jesus loves the church and, and we love Jesus and, and we believe that we can better serve uh, Jesus, if we love his church well. So, welcome to rest. Morning, Rest Church! I love how John was like, hey, we're doing homecoming, we're doing Death is Arrested for the closing song so you don't cry like a baby before you get up to preach. And he was like, we're doing homecoming before, and I was like, oh great, yeah, that, that'll definitely uh, uh, even exchange. Not really at all, man. Um, I love those gospel-centered songs that, man, just talk about how that we have, um, we have been ransomed from death, that, this, that, that, that idea of that homecoming where we should be in a casket, and he is brought forth from the ashes, he's brought forth beauty, he's brought forth roses, and he has redeemed us from the curse of sin and death, amen? Um, all I know is your, your, your tone right now is going to have to be turned up because I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go this morning. Um, this morning, we're, we're going to continue on 2 Timothy chapter 2, and I told you guys three weeks ago, this is one of my favorite uh, um, verses, not verses, chapters in all of the scriptures, and, it, and it's because, you know, it, for, for me and, and my ministry, it, it's a um, chapter that I came to over and over and over, because it, it's Paul's last words um, to, the, to the entire church, but in particular, his Last words to his protege, Timothy. And it's all about how to sustain in the fight and what the, what the mission and what the goal is. And, and we saw that um, a few weeks back. The mission, the goal, it comes down to this, is to entrust in reliable men who would also be able to teach others, right? Paul is writing to Timothy so that the gospel-centered message of discipleship, so that the church will continue to prevail around the central theme of discipleship. Say discipleship. Discipleship is not making converts. It's not being in a stadium full of 50,000 people and asking them to raise their hand for a response in a moment. No, making disciples is hardened people who can handle the melees that life throw at them and still can be standing strong because their feet are firmly planted in the rock, the solid rock, which is Christ Jesus upon his word. And so uh, as we drive into this concept of discipleship, it is fundamentally deeper than just, hey, I, I show up on Sunday, I know the words, I know how to say amen when the preacher gets loud. It is about having a life that is built on the character of the word of God. And so kind of where we come to um, this morning in this passage is a passage that in the 20 years that God has let me serve in ministry, I've came back to over and over and over again. In fact, um, sorry, verse 15, a 
used to actually have on my wall um, growing up. And, and it, was, uh, it was the lifers of everything that, that, that I lived for. And so today what we, what we see Paul bringing and setting before Timothy is kind of this, this picture, this illustration. Paul likes illustrations. He loves to talk about illustrations. But he, he gives us kind of, and, and I know you guys make fun of me because I use this word a lot. He gives us kind of this juxtaposed. There it is. I'll leave it to Josh to make fun of me. It, you, you, you get this juxtaposed illustration. You have the, the good worker or the good workman, and then you have the bad workman. And he puts them side by side, and he gives us a, a clear picture kind of with this idea of Timothy being the good workman and, and the two other guys that he presents to us today as being the model examples of the bad workman. And so a, as we come here, we're going to kind of understand the model of what Timothy is supposed to emulate. And as, as, as we do, one thing that, that Paul's trying to get is he's saying, hey, the good workman is going to have a life of um, vitality that will lead to everlasting life. But the bad workmen, they will be like an infectious bacterial disease that will spread and kill the body. So he, he gives us kind of this eternal perspective of good and this eternal perspective of bad. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19 will be our text this morning. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hemamias and Philolias who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith for some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. This is the word of the Lord, church. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we, we come to you this morning, and we, we ask that, God, that as we open your scriptures, as we open your word, that you would illuminate them to our hearts, that you would illuminate them to our minds, and that, Lord, that we wouldn't just consciously hear and consciously learn, but, God, that we would come and we would ask, Lord, reprove me, rebuke me with your word, and charge me and compel me to become more like you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so verse 14, we're going we're gonna to take off running. I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, jabbering, but remind them of these things. Say, remind them. Say, remind them. Um, this isn't in my notes, but it just came to me. My wife can't remember anything. Okay? Um, she has the best long-term memory ever. Ever. Short-term memory? It's like that of a mouse. Like, she's like, hey, I'm going to the store. Is there anything you need? Yes, I need this very, very important thing called toilet paper. Okay, show up. Hey, did you, did you, no, I forgot. Is there anyone in here who needs to be reminded from time to time? Me. I mean, I will say, I, I, uh, 
As I have grown in my career, I have tried every tool known to man to prioritize my life, to prioritize the action items. And now I'm trying a new tool. It's called Trello. You should check it out if you've never used it before. But it's really awesome to help you remember things. But Paul is writing here specifically to Timothy saying, remind them of these things. So let's catch the context. Timothy is a pastor, a pastor of the church called Ephesus. And he's writing to him saying, hey, remember, this is a pastoral letter. It's a personal letter to um, Timothy from Paul. And he's saying, remind them of these things. What are these things? What's he saying remind them about? Paul uses this letter, all, I mean, this phrase all throughout his letters. But specifically, here in this context, he's talking about what we discussed last week when Pastor West absolutely killed it. So let's, let's rewind a little bit here, verses 8 through 13 of this same chapter. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we would deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. What is the emphasis? What's he saying to remind them about? It's the gospel. Say the gospel. He is saying remind them of the gospel. And, and we use this phrase so often here from this pulpit. If you've been to Rest Church for very much time, the chances are you've heard the word gospel said from the pulpit. And irrespective of which man is standing in this spot, you've heard the word gospel probably a million times. We say it over and over. But let me make sure that we're all on the same page what we mean by gospel. Because as I have went in my ministry, it became apparent that folks have grown up in the church their whole life and have never, ever, ever really heard what is the gospel because they have heard these cowardice preachers only preach about this, that, and the other and never about the beauty of why we assemble. It is nothing else but the gospel. It is the good news that salvation from our sins can be found in Jesus. That on the cross, he took our place, making a way when there was no way because he became the propitiation, absorbing the wrath of God the Father that was pointed at you and me. He ransomed us from death and planted us firmly on our feet into life. That's what we're here for. Paul and us, all of us, we are called to this same mission. We are commissioned with the task of reminding people over and over and over of the gospel through the word of God. If the church or its leaders ever grow tired of teaching, hearing, or reinforcing the gospel, we are not fit to call him Lord. Francis Chan has a great quote around this particular theme. He says, Proclaiming the gospel to a lost world cannot be just another activity to add to the church's crowded agenda. It must be central to who we are. It forms our identity. Is the gospel the formation of your identity? Is it something that you are constantly reminding yourself of? I think while we are called to move from the milk to the meat, as 
Paul says to, uh, to the churches that he writes to. The one thing that we must never forget is the centrality of the gospel, the good news, because it firmly plants us, it chops us and reproves us and rebukes us when we need it. When our pride begins to puff up and we are reminded of the gospel, we remember of how bad we actually are and how good our God is. How that we were ransomed from nothing just like our brother and sister who are lost and it says to us, you are no better than they. We can never depart from the gospel. It must form our identity. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words. I feel like I need Medea voice right now. You know, like, uh, 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 you know, something like that. Because this is easier said than done, right? Not to quarrel about words. Because in our hyper-politically correct culture right now, you have to check every single word that you say because we are fighting about the definition of what words mean, right? Because, Because words, they do matter in how that the person receives them or how they come across but, but in this context, what Paul is trying to, trying to get everybody to understand is don't fight about the ancillary things. We want to focus on the majors. Just kind of like one of our benchmarks, like we say, we major in the majors and we minor in the minors. We want to keep everything fixated upon Jesus and let Jesus be the centrality of our body. Charge them not to quarrel about words. Paul presents the opposite side of the coin of a gospel-centered ministry where they fight on the words. In this particular context here, you've got to remember, you have these Hellenized um, Jews and also in the, in the church in Ephesus, you have these Greek folks. And, and what do we know Greek-influenced culture as being? They're a hyper-philosophical culture, right? So th- these folks would get together and they would begin to fight about philosophy and politics. Sound familiar? We don't do that at all around here, right? We don't ever fight over our philosophy of how life should be lived. We don't ever fight over politics. It's funny that you look at this verse and and, and over 2,000 years later, it is still so prevalent to our churches and to our culture. Don't fight over words. Charge them not to quarrel over words. Another thing that jumps out at me is that Paul says this because the human heart is the exact same today as it was then, right? Name one person that you have ever been in an absolute knockdown, drag-out debate with and them come to your side right at that moment. I'll wait. I feel like I'm on a talk show. I'll hang up and listen, right? 
our pride does not allow us to do that in those moments. Even in the face of overwhelming evidence, even in the face of absolute logic, we're like, just get out of here with that. No, just... That's what we tend to do. And Paul gets that here. Paul understands that if we want to pull people to us, we want to pull people to our perspective, it is done through relationship building. It is not done by hurling insults over the fence at the other side. Do you you see that here? Remind them of these things. Remind them of the gospel, which is grace and love and humility. That's why it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance, not the wrath of God. In the same way, his church should come with the gospel as our shield, as our first words, and not our insults. You don't look like us. We don't like you. You don't talk like us. You're wrong. I can't believe you like to live that way. You're wrong. That's not the picture that we see here. That's why communicators on behalf of the um, church and Jesus must maintain a laser focus on his scriptures when it comes to teaching. The teacher who abandons scripture as the primary source of instruction will end up damaging people and creating divisions. This is because once a leader leaves the biblical revelation for human speculation, the final court of authority has been removed. I want you to think about that. When we remove the bedrock of Scripture as our final authority, as the final lens through which we see the world, what we are actually doing is we're removing scriptural authority for human speculation. And therefore, we kind of descend into this chaos because we don't have a a scale to judge right and wrong. We don't have um, uniformity and a context for where we're driving for the right ethos of our life. We can't simply see the world through our own personal context and be the arbiter of truth from that point of view. What am I getting at? I'm saying if we abandon the Scripture and we allow our presuppositions to be imposed upon the Scripture or imposed upon others, what we become is the arbiter of truth from our own cultural context. And why is, why is that such a big deal? It's because when we allow our cultural context to become the arbiter of truth outside of Scripture, it all depends on who's the loudest, who's the most violent, and who has the largest group in order for them to win. Our context of truth, our context of what we hold to be real, is very different, fundamentally different, than the communist regime of China, than that of the regime of North Korea. That's why we must stand on the word of God as our final authority. This is why the scriptures and the apostolic interpretations of the scriptures must always triumph. Let me make sure I'm clear here what I mean. Well, I can't just say the scriptures are, are our bedrock that we live upon. Because if I do just throw a couple seminary terms at you. It's based upon my hermeneutic, my exegesis, that we build our theological framework for how we live our life. And essentially what I'm saying is the art of interpretation of the original text. But we can't just say, hey, it's upon my 
belief, my interpretation of the scriptures. I have to come back to the apostolic teachings and the apostolic traditions, which is the way that the apostles taught us to set up the New Testament church. And so we must hold and cling tightly to those, not to the the wind of modernization that wants to compile over us on how that the Christian church should look. No, 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 no. The apostles told us how it is to be done, and we cannot forsake that because forsaking that for something else is not Christ. People will always fight over all kinds of issues if they have no common source of authority for evaluating experience, opinions, and traditions. The scriptures must be our fundamental basis from where we come from. Verse 15, do your best. Do your best. Have you ever been told to do your best? Yeah, two of you. Two of you. Like every, like the morning before you go take your SAT, your mom didn't say, go do your best, right? Or, or, or the first time you ran out on the football field and your uh, helmet was bigger than your whole body, you know, your family didn't say, hey, go do your best. This, this particular phrase here, Paul is beginning to paint this picture in verse 15 of what a good worker embodies. And he says, do your best. And in the Greek, this, this word here, do your best, this phrase, all together, essentially, probably the best understanding, if we draw it down out of the Greek right into English, he's saying, make haste. Make haste. What, what, what does that mean, church? To make haste means to move with authority. That means to move at velocity. To go and to not waste any time. Don't be lazy about the assignment. Don't be lazy about what you've been called to. If you've been following along at all, even so slightly, your first and second Timothy, what you see, what you are hearing over and over is that Paul is very serious and expects urgency from Timothy as a elder, as a pastor. He expects him to be urgent because there is spiritual warfare going on among the church. And he says, if you don't act now, there is eternal implications. And so make haste. Paul wants it to be clear. There is no room for slackers in the ministry, especially for those who are called to teach, especially those who are discipling others. There is not room to be lazy. Word work is hard work, church. Word work is hard work. And and I want you to hear me and I, I don't remember the exact sermon. There was a, I don't know, a couple months back. I spent 15 minutes talking about each and every one of you are called to teach. If you have kids, if you have grandkids, if you have brothers, if you have sisters, if you have nieces and nephews, you're called to teach. It is an inescapable, unavoidable thing. 
And if you are surrendering your life daily to Christ, if you call yourself a Christ follower, he is saying to you, the implication is not just for me from this place, not for Pastor Johan, not for Pastor John, not for Pastor Adam. It is not just for those in the ministry who are or, uh, teaching the oracles of Scripture, who are orators to the corporate body. It is to all of us. We are to make haste because word work is hard work. And if you remember back to First um, Timothy 5.17, Paul said that those who teach are worth double honor. Why? Why are they worth double honor? Because it's hard work to rightly understand the Scripture and then present it in a way that's clear that other folks can understand. If you've ever tried to teach a Bible study, if you've ever sat down with a kid, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes adults are easier to teach than kids because you're like, yeah, Jesus wants you to be saved. And they're like, what does saved mean? And you're like, you know how a lifeguard jumps into a pool? Like you're trying to find words. It is hard work to bring complex things out of the scriptures to a place of granularity and clarity that other folks can understand. That's why word work is hard work, and we're all called to that. It's also hard work because it's handling material that is controversial. Sometimes we have to say things that are not popular. Sometimes we have to say things that make people, let's be honest, want to punch us. A teacher is not handling ideas that are mere topics for small talk, but rather the Word of God, and the Word of God shows us that there is death and life in the balance. Word work is hard work, and he says for us to do it with haste. Do your best. Make haste. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. I want to pause here because the good worker is not the one who has the biggest crowd following him. A good worker is not the one who has his hands raised the highest in worship. A good worker is not the one who stands at the door every week with the biggest fake smile you've ever seen. I'm so happy to see you, brother. A good worker is not one who every day on their social media posts a scripture and says, oh, look at this. It's not the one who has the most eloquent speech. Rather, it is the one who submits himself and his work to God. The Christian life does not come down to knowledge of the scriptures or who has raised their hands in worship, but rather it comes down to character. I can't overstate that enough. A workman who is approved is a person of character. A person who yields their life to Christ Jesus every day, who embodies the, the, the phrase of the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ, therefore I will be crucified daily. The Christian life comes down character. And then when we put this kind of in context here, we see this as one who is approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed. I want to ask you, have you ever overestimated your talent before? 
Like, have you, have, you, have you ever, like, you know, thought, I don't need to train, or I don't need to practice or study for that test? And you find out about 30 seconds into whatever it is that you're in way over your skis. Has that ever happened to any of you? Yeah? And in those moments, has there ever been someone counting on you, potentially on the other side of whatever task that you've been asked to do, or whether it's a a sport like, you know, like you used to be a good basketball player in high school. And there's, there's this three-on-three tournament, and they're like, hey, man, you used to be good at basketball. And you're like, yeah, I was good at basketball. And then you get out there, and you find out that your basketball belly and your, you know, half a pack a day has really started to put a damper on your basketball skills. But have you ever, you know, overestimated your talent that you can accomplish something that someone has asked you to do, but to only find out that you have, you know, that you're going to let them down. And in that moment, when you find out, when you figure out someone's counting on me and I've overestimated my talent, you feel about that big, don't you? Because you become ashamed of the work that you're doing. My dad's a carpenter. And I remember my whole life, I always wanted his approval when it came to doing carpentry things. And it was always that moment where you know whether you did a good or bad job after you put whatever it is together. And it's like you look at it and you just look at it and you go, yeah, I really don't want him to see that. Yeah, I don't want him to see that. And so you like disassemble it and it's like the moment that he walks in to see your mess that you've made, he's like, what, what are you doing? I, t- I taught you better than that. You know better than that. You know how to do that. Why didn't you take your time? Why didn't you? And you're just like, meh, 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 meh. right? That's exactly what Paul's saying here. A good workman is good because when God inspects their work, they don't feel shame because they gave it their all. He's saying, present yourself to God as one approved. Well, how do, how do we gain approval? A workman who has no need to be ashamed. Did I push all of the chips to the center of the table? Did I wake up and make the conscious choice to follow Jesus? Did I study his scriptures? that I'll allow them to illuminate my life, to have an impact in my life. A workman who is approved, a workman who is not ashamed, is a workman who possesses character. Following God when no one's watching. Listening to the voice of the Lord when their flesh is trying every way in the world to compel them to follow their sinful heart. To love God and his bride, even in the face of immense adversity. That is character. And and, and it comes down to this. Are we making haste to have character in the face of adversity? Are we making haste when daddy walks in to look and inspect our work? We go, look, daddy, look what I made. 
the reality is, is the Lord isn't inspe- he's not expecting perfection from us. He knows that we can't achieve perfection. So we can't set this dumb bar to where we're constantly beating ourselves up. But no, what we can say is that I will not find myself who is, who is falling to the sins of, of omission that I am daily consciously choosing to go after my vomit like a dog, but rather I will choose Jesus. Do your best to present God Present yourself to God as one approved, who a workman who has no need to be ashamed. Rightly handling the word of truth. This is huge right here. Rightly handling the word of truth. A good workman is careful and accurate in their teaching. Rightly handling. In the Greek, that phrase, rightly handling. Orthometo. Translated as correctly teaching or rightly handling is a word that means cut straight. Cut straight. Say cut straight. This particular phrase is where we get the word orthodontist or orthodox. It is derived from this same thought. And what is it that an orthodontist does? If you've ever been to an orthodontist, I haven't. But if you've been, all the friends who I know who have are like, it hurts. It's terrible. Right? Because you're in there, you know, it's probably not as bad now, but they're in there cranking on your head, right? And what's the, what's the purpose of what they're doing? They're straightening your teeth. They're taking your crooked teeth and they're aligning them and making them straight. It's also where we get this word orthodoxy. It means that we are aligning, that we are making ourselves straight with the apostolic, historic um, Christian faith. But what is Timothy metaphorically to cut straight? What is he supposed to do here? What is he supposed to cut straight through the word? Commentators suggest that, that this particular thing is almost like a father sitting down with a loaf of bread and slicing the bread. He is to cut the bread, the bread of life, straight. Or perhaps the best description, which most commentators believe, is that it is a roadmaker cutting a straight path through a forest. Timothy is to keep the hearers on the way of truth by clearing out a straight path on which they may walk. Think about this. A, a teacher, an orator. Someone who is the disciple. Someone who is to engage folks with the scriptures. The best way they can do it is try to limit every distraction to make it as crystal clear as they possibly can and to cut a straight path through the noise of life. And that's what Paul is saying to him. To rightly handle, he's cutting a straight path for the word of truth. And this is derived from from um, Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The idea is clear. Timothy must teach the word carefully and clearly to the hearers who stay on the path of life. Rightly handling the word of truth. If there's one thing I've learned, don't speak when you don't know. Don't speak 
when you don't know. I should have, I should have got that video I sent you last night. I sent Adam this video of this woman going in to a, um, a leg curl table, and the caption said, when I try to show people my end-of-times prophecy skills. And she gets up on the leg curl table, and she tries to get her, she thinks she has her legs in the leg curl, and she just falls over and face plants right into the ground and basically curls over. That's my end-of-time prophecy speech. But I say that because don't speak from a place of authority on a subject that you don't know. It's better to say to someone when they asked you a question about a biblical text, I need to do some research, let me go find out, before you speak authoritative about something you don't know. And, and Christians, I love you, but we're the worst at this. We're the worst at hurling insults at people about things that we don't know ourselves about theology that we don't understand ourselves. So in order for us to be a workman who is approved by God, we must cut straight for the word of truth or the word of God. Don't speak authoritative on things you don't know. Verse 16. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Within the early church, false and heretical teachers, just like today, were crazy prevalent. They had exchanged the assignment of careful exposition of the scriptures for irreverent babble and empty speech. Paul equates this, this style of teaching, this style of leading, as gangrene. He says that it's like a, it is like a flesh-eating bacteria that is in the body, that if a portion of the body in this time period was not lopped off, that it would spread throughout the entire body and kill it completely. This empty, irreverent babble. The corporate church, nor small groups that meet, we don't need flashy nothingness. We don't need the next best new Bible study written by this crazy, you know, um, um, hipster pastor. We, we, don't, we don't need that junk. We don't need that garbage. We need the gospel over and over and over again. This is why we here at Rest Church, we firmly believe in expository preaching and teaching. It doesn't lend itself to flashy speech or eloquence. And, it, and it's not short. Amen? Right? If you don't know, I, I can preach for an hour on one verse. I'll show you today. It doesn't lend itself to flashy preaching or, or fleeting catchphrases. But rather, it centers the attention on the Word of God. That's what the church needs. The church needs to understand the complexities of the scripture. They need to understand how to take out their pickaxe, grab their shovel, and get right into the scriptures. How to draw out the hermeneutic. How to draw out the exegesis. How to understand and interpret the scriptures 
for themselves in their own Bible study. And how do you do that? You learn through hearing the tearing apart of the Word. We believe that godliness is cultivated as the Word of God is taught, and it changes people from the inside out. Verse 17, among them, we're going to get these two men, the the bad workmen, Hymenaeus and Philolaeus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. Paul presents us with these two men who would begin to spread this uh, asinine lie among the early church, saying that the resurrection for those who were following Jesus had already occurred. And, and, and that's a big deal, right? That, that, that Jesus has already came, and the dead in Christ have already came out of the ground and have now went to meet him in heaven. That's a big deal, right? Because what's the rest of the church doing? Right? We're just, we're on the path to hell. We're nothingness. Oh my gosh. And so Paul, is, he, he, is, he is chastising these men because they have ran a major foul within the confines of Orthodox Christianity. As the resurrection, both of Christ Jesus and our own, is no small thing. It's fundamental to our faith. Why is it fundamental to our faith? To believe that we will rise again with Christ Jesus. Why is it fundamental? Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, And your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is not true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and still in your sins. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ Jesus have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. If we are not a part of that resurrection, our faith is pointless. Say pointless. If you don't believe that the resurrection is going to happen one day, if you don't believe that Jesus is going to come back, I'm just going to be honest with you. Just stop pretending. Because to reject the resurrection of Jesus and to reject the resurrection of his church is a quintessential denial of Jesus himself. They go hand in hand. It is irreparable. This type of teaching that we see from these two men, the result of false teaching is deadly. It leads people away from God. Moreover, false teaching spreads throughout the community with ravaging effects. A false teaching in our culture that is pervasive and kind of counter to the scriptures in this age of tolerance and relativism. You all know this. We hear about it all the time. Whatever is true for you, it's true for you. Or, hey, follow your heart. Or folks will hurl at us or, 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 or progressive leaning Christians will say, 
Why can't you just be loving like Jesus? 1 Corinthians 13.6 says, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. From this text today, Paul is shouting, there is a true path and there is a false path. There is a mark you can hit and there is a mark you can miss. There is truth you can nourish and there is falsehood that kills. Life and death hang in the balance from what is spoken here, what is spoken in our small groups, what is spoken in our D groups. Life and death is in the balance because what we say, what we believe, it matters because the scriptures tell us it matters and the scriptures are our absolute, uttermost, number one authority of our lives. So what is it that we do to push back against bad teaching, incorrect theology? What is it? What is the greatest deterrent? I've talked about it multiple times. The greatest deterrent of false teaching is a biblical, liter- biblically literate, theologically informed local church. The greatest deterrent to false teaching is you. You are it. And as I've said to you multiple times, I know A.B. and Johan have said this from the pulpit to you. If we say something that is incorrect, we don't ask you to sit there and just listen. We ask you to reprove and rebuke us because it is your God-given responsibility. You are what matters. The biblically informed, theologically informed local church. Verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. I love we get to close here. Paul says, hey, don't let these numbskulls, don't let these false teachers get you down and out because God is still on his throne. Right? But what we tend to do in these moments, and I talked about it a few weeks ago, it's just like the skier coming down the mountain. You remember that analogy? The skier is coming down the mountain, and he's flying through this aspen grove of trees. And you're like, how is he not hitting a tree? How is he not hitting a tree? Because the whole time you'd be thinking, I'm going to hit a tree, I'm going to hit a tree. And when you think about the tree, you hit a tree. But a professional cross-country skier, as they're coming down the mountain through the aspen grove, they only look at the snow. They follow the path. And as they follow the snow, they always follow the snow. Paul is saying here to Timothy, don't let the false teachers, don't let the the fighting over words, don't let the fighting over philosophy and politics get you down. Don't let the noise of the world shutter you out to where you think all is lost because it is not all lost because God is still on his throne. God's firm foundation will never be shaken, church. His church will never be moved. No matter how many false teachers come along, no matter how many people try to distort the word of truth, his church will remain. Paul brings this through, this this quote where he says, let everyone who names, or the Lord knows those who are his, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart.
depart from iniquity. This is pulled from Numbers chapter 16. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but essentially there is this group of men led by Korah during the Exodus that rise up against Moses and Aaron. And they begin to, they begin to say false things like, Moses and Aaron have set themselves up above all of Israel. They're making themselves the center of attention. It's all about Moses and Aaron. Can't you tell? Moses says, tomorrow we'll find out. Tomorrow we'll come and we'll offer offering to God. And the men who are the men of God, whom God has chosen, God will choose. If I'm standing and the earth doesn't swallow me, then I am the man. If the earth swallows you, then you're not the man. And you're like, oh, snap. What's about to go down? The very next day, the word, the audible voice of God speaks to the nation of Israel and says, hey, go get the clansmen away from these men because I'm about to swallow them up. And they go out to the tent of these three clansmen and they tell all the people to get away from them and God literally opens the earth swallows them and closes it back and it was here that this phrase come from the Lord knows those who are his let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity it's here that that comes forth. While today God's justice is not as excising as it was in that moment, we can never forget that God will avenge our iniquities. God will avenge those who persecute his church. They might not do it here. He might not do it now, but he will avenge those who persecute his church. He will avenge on behalf of the sheep who have been led astray by a shepherd who's actually a wolf. Paul's saying to Timothy, don't ever Allow your hope to be fixated in the teachers that teach you because the throne of heaven will never be moved. God knows those who are His. And as Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, He asked the question, what can separate us from the love of God? Paul goes on this long saying, not height nor depth, not angels, not demons, not rulers, not principalities, not the things that are present, not the things that are come. Nothing shall separate the elect from the love of God. So when the noise of the world is screaming at us, telling us that what we believe, though it is a tradition from 2,000 years ago, might be wrong to them because of their cultural context, I can tell you, turn it out. Turn it out. And turn up the noise of amazing grace. 
and know that we have been saved from the domain of darkness. And no matter what the world insults us with, our God is on His throne. God's action and salvation results in a life of fruitful obedience. You did nothing to earn your salvation. You did nothing. You brought nothing to the party. You did nothing. He did it all. And out of that, He brought forth something new. desire to follow him, a desire to lead a life of truth. His people avoid wickedness and bear fruit. John Calvin says this about this subject, the gospel is not a doctrine of the tongue, but of life. It cannot be grasped by reason and memory only but is fully understood when it possesses the whole soul and penetrates the inner recesses of the heart. The church should be consumed with gospel proclamation and gospel transformation and not being nitpickers and naysayers. The transformation of the grave to life evident in our words and in our actions to the world like Jesus our character should be driving us to a place that is slow to anger and quick to forgive how do we get to that place because if I'm honest with you there are days that boy do I struggle with that concept of being slow to anger and quick to but I think it comes back to where we begin. But remind them of this. We do it by revisiting the gospel story over and over. We remember that before we met Jesus, we were broken. We were destitute. nothing but our sin and our shame. But when we met him, he gave us a new name. He no longer looks at us and says sinner, but he looks at us and he says saint, child, son, God, I'm not sure I'm good enough. He's looking at you and he says, you are good enough. You are my beautiful daughter. You are my beautiful son. You are my strong son. And we, we get that. We glean that from the gospel. 